Good morning, church. Let me ask, have you ever needed a vacation? Like really needed one? Maybe you're thinking, I could really use a vacation right now. Don't nudge your spouse. I'll see. I'll tell on you. God made us for rest. And vacations can sometimes be restful. That's what we desire when we want a vacation. We want to get away. We want some rest. We want to get out of normal life for a moment and take a breath. God built the desire for rest and work into our hearts. It's part of being human. That's how he designed the first couple. Life comes at us fast, and sometimes it gets a bit overwhelming. Right? Work gets busy or stressful. Relationships get strained. Family gets spread thin. And it doesn't help if there's sickness in the home or an even necessarily overcrowded schedule for a season. We see the need for rest, especially when worse things pop up in our lives. When we're under the strain of grief, for instance. Or when we are consumed by anxiety over a a difficult situation. Last week in our text in Matthew chapter 14, we saw that Jesus had a very good reason to want some rest. At the beginning of that chapter, we read that his ministry partner, John the Baptist, had been beheaded by a cruel and selfish king. So Jesus set off in a boat with his disciples to a desolate place. But when they arrived at their destination... For their vacation, so to speak, they were met by a crowd, a huge crowd in need. And instead of being impatient or abandoning the crowd, Jesus heals them all and then miraculously feeds them. Jesus had compassion on the lost sheep of Israel in the midst of his grief and his desire for rest. But our text this week will show us that Jesus did finally get that rest with his father. And it turns out that the prayerful rest Jesus found would be, uh, would set up the greatest display of his divinity yet. So let's stand and read Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 23 together. Again, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. This is the word of the Lord. Immediately, he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Please be seated. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. We are hungry for it. So we pray that you would feed us by your spirit now. Help us to conform our lives to your word. Mold us and shape us into the image of Christ now. Give us wisdom and insight and understanding, we pray. Amen. The backdrop to this text this famous miracle, and indeed the backdrop to the whole chapter is the death of John the Baptist. Remember, this is one continuous narrative, especially in chapter 14. One continuous narrative, starting with the death of John the Baptist, going through the feeding of the 5,000, and now this miracle. Maybe Jesus' most famous miracle, in verses 22 through 33, we see Jesus in three locations. On the mountain, on the water, and in the boat. Just like Matthew, we're going to spend most of our time with Jesus on the water. But there are some profound things to learn from each location. So first, Jesus on the mountain. You'll recall from verse 15 that Jesus fed the massive crowd in the evening. Remember, his disciples wisely came to Jesus saying, hey, it's getting late and these people are hungry. Send them away. You remember how Jesus answers them? He refuses and he says, you feed them. And they figure out that they are completely unable to do anything with that command. But now the crowds have been fed. Jesus takes charge. He sits the crowds down and he distributes five loaves and two fish, miraculously feeding 5,000 men, so probably many more in, in attendance. But now the crowds are full, and it's late. It's late, late, and they're in the middle of nowhere. So we read in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So once the feast is over and the bellies of the people are full, Jesus sends the disciples away, and he sends them away forcefully. Note that. The ESV renders these words faithfully here. He made the disciples get into the boat. Why is Jesus shoving his disciples into a boat right after they're done eating? Well, we get that answer from the Gospel of John. After the disciples gather up the leftovers, we read in John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the crowd that he just fed had plans to make him king. Jesus' kingdom, however, is a heavenly kingdom, as Matthew has continually pointed out for us. Jesus had no plans to establish an earthly kingdom in the nation of Israel. But this crowd wanted to make him that kind of king. And Matthew gives us hints of this in his narrative, although he doesn't focus on it in the same way John does. 
But by recording that those who ate were 5,000 men, not counting women or children, he's echoing the military language in the Old Testament when the tribes of Israel were being counted in the book of Numbers for the conquering of Canaan. It sounds like an army is gathered in the wilderness around Jesus. Indeed, most messianic movements in Israel, and there were several at the time of Christ, most of them mustered their strength for their revolt in the wilderness, in a desolate place. They would go out into the wilderness, just like Joshua had Israel in the wilderness before taking the promised land. And then they'd start their revolt. And one such revolt would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But this isn't what Jesus wants. Right? He's not going out to the wilderness to start a revolt. He went to the wilderness to find rest and to spend time in prayer. So he makes his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side because this kind of king-making would have been most tempting for them. Think about it. They know Jesus better than anybody else. They understand that he is the best possible leader of Israel. They're starting to understand that he is the Christ. It would be tempting for them to join with the crowd and try to make Jesus king. So, Jesus sets them on their way. And then Jesus dismisses the crowd, no doubt disappointing them in the process. In fact, the Gospel of John makes that explicit. Jesus' next interaction with the same crowd would, would upset them and disappoint them because he calls himself the bread of life and he asks them why they keep seeking earthly bread. Many were confused by those words and many left Jesus' side. But here in Matthew, Jesus is able to send the crowds away. And after he dismisses the crowds, we're told he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Last week, we focused on Jesus' compassion. Instead of putting his own desires as the first priority, he has compassion on the crowd. And he heals their sick and he feeds them. He just received the news of the death of his friend and ministry partner, but he sets that grief aside and he focuses on the crowd. His heart is full of compassion. It's only here, after all is said and done, that Jesus climbs the nearest hill and has his restful time with the Lord. He did get this alone time. So that should teach us something very important for our own spiritual lives. One of Luke's recurring themes in his gospel is Jesus getting by himself to pray. Matthew records it less often than Luke, but Jesus prioritizes alone time with the Father in his ministry, in his normal life. And if we want to be like Jesus, we should do likewise. We need to prioritize alone time with the Father. Remember what Jesus told us to do in Matthew chapter 6 when we pray. He said, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And in the immediate context of that statement, it was to contrast those who were praying publicly and loudly and boastfully in order to be noticed. Christians need not do that. Instead, they should find solitude. Jesus demonstrates that kind of solitude for us here in Matthew chapter 14. He sends his disciples away. He sends the crowds away. He removes all distractions. 
His location even reflects this solitude. It's a desolate mountainside. Jesus makes time to focus entirely on the Father in prayer. Solitude is a spiritual discipline. And it's a discipline I would encourage you to practice. It's not simply being alone. It's not simply quiet time. It's finding that quiet and alone time and peace with the Lord. It's a discipline because it isn't easy. Some of us in here are extreme extroverts, and that sounds not fun. We want to be with people. Plus, it's hard to make time in our schedule for things like this. Many have solitude in the morning. Many have solitude right before bed. They sit alone with the Lord and His Word, and they rest in His presence. In other words, solitude is an expression of rest. It's an expression of Sabbath. We might be confused reading this passage. Jesus seems to spend all night in prayer to the Lord. Surely we would be exhausted by that. But Matthew doesn't hint in that direction at all. If anything, it seems like Jesus is more rested coming down from the mountain after a whole night of prayer because he's able to walk a multiple mile hike on top of water. Now, I'm not encouraging you to swap your sleep for prayer. This is Jesus we're talking about. But he demonstrates something for us really important. Rest in the Lord is truly rest. We are tempted to think that setting aside time to read the word and pray is just another thing we have to do, another thing we have to schedule that takes our time and energy. We're tempted to think that spiritual disciplines drain us, that we might need a vacation from them every once in a while. But that couldn't be further from the truth. When Jesus is grieving and tired, he seeks this solitude and time of prayer because he knows it will fill his tank. Likewise, we should desire to spend time with the Lord so we can have our tanks filled up. There's a famous quote by Martin Luther who said this about a busy day. Listen, he said, I have so much to do that I shall have to spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. Do you find rest with the Lord in that way? Do you think of your time with the Lord as truly restful? Or do you think of spending time with the Lord like a burden? I confess I go through cycles of desire when it comes to reading the word and prayer. I think all of us experience this. Sometimes in God's grace, prayer and Bible reading feel like a cool lake that I get to swim in on a hot summer's day. Other times it feels like a burden that I have to make myself carry. But always when I do make time, to pray and to read, I feel rested and restored. Let's follow Jesus' example here and make time for solitude, getting some quiet with him in prayer and Bible reading, spending time with our heavenly Father, communing with him in his word. Jesus needed that time, and he made time for it. But he also used his solitude to teach his disciples something. So second, let's look at Jesus on the water. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. 
The disciples, while Jesus is having a night of prayer and rest, they're having a hard time. Jesus sent them on their way while he was dismissing the crowd, but they've made little headway across the lake. By this time, they should have been well across. But Matthew tells us that their boat was beaten by the waves and that the winds were against them. Jesus is in the region of Bethsaida, which is just east of the Jordan River on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And he sent his disciples across the lake, which would mean toward Capernaum, where they all lived. It wasn't across the whole width of the lake, but it was across. And this boat ride shouldn't have taken all night, maybe a couple hours, but not all night. The wind and the waves have pushed the disciples a long way from the land, Matthew tells us. It it literally says many stadia, which would have been three or four miles away from the shore. The, The Sea of Galilee is... Only about five miles across at its widest. They are in the middle of the lake. Verse 25 tells us that Jesus comes to them in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. So let's say everybody finishes eating at 8 p.m. The sun is down. Jesus dismisses the crowds and tells the disciples to go. Now let's be really generous and say it's only 3 a.m. They've been rowing through the middle of the night nonstop in the face of wind and waves. They're exhausted, and they're probably soaked all the way through. They've not had a restful night with the Lord like Jesus. Okay, so this is their current state. And this is when they see Jesus doing something unbelievable. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Now, Matthew doesn't comment about this amazing feat itself. In all the shows and movies about Jesus that show him walking on the water, they always show him in slow motion, taking his first step, confident step, while the sun is setting behind him, and it's victorious and beautiful, and they show close-ups of the disciples and the wow faces that they have on while he does this. But that's not how Matthew presents it to us at all. It's dark. The wind is howling, the waves are beating the boat, the men are tired, and they look over and they see someone walking on the water. Look at their reaction in verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. They're exhausted, it's completely dark, and it's scary to look out and see someone walking on the water. What else would they think other than this is a ghost? These are fishermen by trade who fished on this lake for a living. Each one of them probably knew at least one person who drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And it's dark. It's scary. They're terrified. And if you think you would have been any different in this situation, I think you're pretty funny. Jesus has to calm them down. It it says, immediately Jesus spoke to them. Notice that's the second time we're told Jesus does something immediately. Look out for the third. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now these short words of Jesus are profound, so let's slow down and look at them bit by bit. Jesus is not trying to scare his disciples. He's trying to bring them comfort So he immediately speaks to them. He says, take heart. 
And this is his common way of encouraging people. Over and over, Jesus tells people, take heart, buck up, have courage. And he says, it is I. In the Greek, that's just two words. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, these are the same two words that God uses for his personal name. I am. Ego emi. Now remember, the disciples are distressed and scared, and Jesus is trying to tell them that it's, it's just him, right? He's not a ghost, it's me. But as careful readers of the scriptures, we should notice what Matthew is doing. He's well aware of the dual meaning of Jesus' words. Jesus is using the divine name in the midst of a miracle in order to claim divinity and to calm his disciples. In the Gospel of John, Jesus constantly uses these two Greek words to refer to himself. And he does it on purpose over and over to claim divinity. Matthew doesn't do that. He's not like John in his writing. But he throws it in here as a small nugget for his readers, for us, to show that Jesus is claiming to be God. Now, if we're not convinced that Jesus is God at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, through everything that Jesus has done, all of the healings and all of the miracles, even the walking on the water, we should see in this statement a clear claim. But again, that's not what the disciples hear. They simply hear, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. This call to have no fear is a reassuring note that runs through the whole gospel. In fact, you could read the gospel of Matthew with that in mind and notice time and time again, servants of the Lord being told not to have fear. One truth from the gospel of Matthew that Matthew wants you to notice and take away is that disciples of Jesus Christ need not fear. Peter demonstrates this truth in verses 28 through 31. The other accounts of Jesus walking on the water in Mark and in John have Jesus getting in the boat right away after he meets up with it. Matthew is the only gospel who includes this bit about Peter getting out of the boat. Jesus tells his disciples not to fear. And Peter replies to him. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Which is a remarkable request. Now, whether to understand his request as good or bad is a controversial question throughout church history. Some commentators see this as a demonstration of pure faith to come out to Jesus on the water. Some have seen this as Peter pridefully testing God, something that shouldn't be done. More common in our time is the former, right? In fact, this small episode is often turned into nothing more than a parable for Christians who are called to get out of their boat and go to Jesus in faith. So Peter is then just a symbol of a faithful Christian who exercises the greatest of faiths. The reality is a bit more nuanced. Should Peter have asked Jesus to allow him to get out of the boat and enable him to walk on the water? On one hand, we might say that Peter's eyes were too big for his stomach. His perceived faith did not match his real faith. Once he gets out of the boat, he starts to sink. 
But on the other hand, this is a natural extension of the discipleship that Peter has been participating in. Think about it. Think through the gospel with me. Just a couple chapters before this, Jesus has given these same men the ability to heal and cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Then Matthew gives us the third discourse. The parable discourse, remember? Which centered on the disciples receiving exclusive knowledge of the kingdom. Jesus has been taking a hands-on approach to discipleship. He's been bringing his disciples along to participate in everything. In fact, the episode right before this, do you remember what Jesus did to feed the crowd? He broke the bread, and who did he give it to? His disciples. His disciples distribute the loaves and the fishes. So Peter looks out of the boat, and he sees Jesus walking on the water, and he rightly thinks, if my master can do this, He can enable me to do it as well. None of the other disciples in the boat come to that conclusion, which may give us some insight into Peter. He's bold and impetuous and perhaps a bit presumptive, but maybe Peter should have enjoyed the moment a bit more instead of including himself in it. But he acts on what he knows so we can forgive him. Jesus has been bringing him along the whole time to participate in the kingdom. So why not this too? He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And we shouldn't understand Peter saying, if it is you, as if he's doubting. The language is more like, since it's you. He expresses faith that the person standing on the water is Jesus, not a ghost. It's his actual body. And he asks Jesus to command him to come out to him on the water. And Jesus says, come. In fact, in the Greek, it's more like, Start to come, or like, come on then, right? It's a response I might give to my daughter if she asked to do something with me. All right, come on. All right, fine, let's go. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus, verse 29. He's doing it. Peter is walking on the water, but he doesn't get very far when we read, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I'll confess to you that I've wrestled with these words the last couple of weeks as this text has slowly approached. And the more that I've read them, the more questions that I've had. You might have them too. Why does Peter start to sink? What does Jesus mean by saying he has little faith? What is Peter doubting? What was keeping Peter afloat? That last question is incredibly important to answer if we're going to understand this passage. So my apologies to you if you were one of several people who I pestered about this question over the last two weeks or so. You each really helped me articulate my thoughts. What was keeping Peter afloat? There's really two possible answers to the question. The first possible answer is that it was merely Peter's faith. Peter steps out of the boat, and because he has expressed his great faith, he's able to stand and walk on top of the water. After all, Jesus will say in Matthew 17, verse 20, If you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. 
and nothing will be impossible for you. Ultimately, this answer, this first answer says that Peter has faith in the fact that he can walk on water. Jesus has revealed to him this fact that he can walk on water and he's called him out onto the water. And, but, but once Peter is afraid, notice, once his attention is brought to his danger, he starts to sink. His faith then is like a buoy keeping him afloat. But his doubt is like a needle that punctures the flotation device. Once he starts to sink, only then does he ask for salvation out of necessity. And Jesus responds to Peter, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Because he wants Peter to believe in himself. Peter's problem in in this view was that his faith wasn't big enough to keep him afloat. Now, most teachers who teach this view might not come right out and say it in those terms. That sounds maybe a bit too sacrilegious to say it so plainly, but... Many teachers don't shy away from applying this story in that way, right? Step out in faith. Get out of the boat. If you have enough faith, and only if you have enough faith, God can do amazing things for you. Your wants and your desires are only a faithful prayer away. And if you are sinking in life, it's because you lack faith. Now, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's keep the kernel of truth here. Peter's faith certainly plays a role in the story, but we'll come back to that. Remember, the the most important question is this. What was keeping Peter afloat? The first answer is merely his faith. The second answer is that it is the power of Jesus keeping him afloat. And this answer is self-evidently true. It's not merely Peter's faith that keeps him afloat. Obviously, it's Jesus' power that enables Peter to walk on the water. That's exactly what Peter recognizes when he's in the boat. He looks out and he sees Jesus and he says to himself, if my Lord can walk on the water, he can enable me to walk on the water. So he gets out of the boat, completely reliant upon the power of Jesus. It's not like Peter is discovering some innate superpower That's only brought alive by his faith, right? His faith isn't like pixie dust or something like that. No, Jesus is sustaining him upon the water. It's only by his power that Peter is walking. Because Jesus is God. Which is where this whole passage ends up. The wind and the waves are nothing to Jesus, right? Even the wind and the waves are his servants, Because he's God. When he commands them to become firm like a path, they obey. And Jesus is able to do this for Peter too. Peter walks on the water because Jesus sustains him there. Amen. But then, why does Peter sink? If Jesus is enabling this miracle to happen, why does Peter sink? Why does Jesus rebuke him? After saving him, why does Jesus say, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? We would think that if it was only by Jesus' power that Peter was able to walk on the water, then no matter what Peter thought or felt, no matter where he looked, and no matter what level of fear he experienced, Jesus would continue to sustain him on the water. Right? But if Peter starts to sink because his faith is too small, then the first answer makes more sense, right? Why would Jesus rebuke him about his faith? Jesus wouldn't let Peter sink, would he? 
Perhaps he would. Let's think this through again. The second answer to the question is, again, self-evidently correct. Peter is not discovering uh, a great talent that he has. Peter's able to walk on the water because of the power of Jesus. But that begs a second question. Why does Jesus let Peter sink? Let's reread verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Peter is a fisherman by, by trade. He's made a living fishing on this lake. I mentioned earlier that he's undoubtedly known some people, even other fishermen, who have drowned in this startlingly deep lake. Peter steps off of the sure ground of the boat and into the water. He does so because he sees his master doing it, and he believes that his master can give him the same ability. Miraculously, he's able to stand on top of and even walk on the water. But the disciples have been rowing their boat in the midst of battering waves and harsh winds for hours. So once Peter is confronted with the mortal peril that he has seemingly put himself in, he starts to sink. Peter forgets what's keeping him afloat. Better yet, Peter remembers the true fact that he can't walk on water. Peter's mistake isn't too little faith in himself. In fact, if anything, he rightly understands his abilities in the moment. Peter lacks faith in the power of Jesus. But listen closely. It isn't this lack of faith that makes Peter sink. Jesus lets Peter sink so that he can cry out to him for salvation. It's been Jesus' power all along, and Peter's failure was in thinking that it was his. When Peter feels the strong winds, his attention is turned inward, and he becomes afraid for his life. Peter looks to himself as the power of his walking on the water. He stops believing that Jesus' power is sufficient enough to keep him on the water. So Jesus, being a good teacher, allows Peter to sink so that he'll learn that salvation and indeed all things come through faith in him. Peter's greatest moment here isn't climbing out of the boat. It's having the wisdom to cry out, Lord, save me. And that's what Jesus does. Immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand. Praise the Lord. If you would do anything for the kingdom of God, it must be in faith. But mere faith isn't what we are called to. We must have faith in the right thing. It isn't the amount of faith that we have that enables us to do great things for the kingdom of God. It's the object of our faith. Jesus is the only one worthy of our faith. He is able to save to the uttermost. Walking on the water is no big deal to him. We need to stop thinking that we are the ones ultimately sustaining our lives. That's idolatry. That's why Peter sinks. Jesus is the sustainer. When we start to turn inward and believe that we are only walking this Christian path because of our own effort, we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus lets us sink a bit to remind us of his power. He does this with Peter to teach us that we are no different. Sometimes we need this reminder, don't we? 
especially when we are like the disciples, tired, worn out, scared, unsure of the future, when we'll get to our destination. May our faith ever be in the right object, who alone is able to do all things according to his plan and purpose. Amen? The story doesn't end with Peter's salvation. Third, we see Jesus in the boat. Verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Jesus calms the winds and the waves just like he did in chapter 8. But this time he doesn't have to say anything. This tells us something. Jesus, Jesus was in control of the winds and the waves the whole time. Did he have a purpose for the disciples out on the boat? Yeah. You bet he did. He wanted to see, he wanted them to see that he was in absolute control of the whole situation. When, when Jesus asks Peter, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He's asking, why did you doubt me? Don't you know that at this point I'm in control of all things? Don't you know that the wind and the waves have to even obey me? Why did you doubt? That's what he wants the disciples to learn. Maybe you've noticed that this is the first time Matthew mentions the disciples being without Jesus since Jesus sent them on their missionary journey. They've been by his side learning from him. But now Jesus told them to go out on their own. And they discovered that they were unable to accomplish the goal that he set before them in their own strength. They couldn't make it across the lake. It's not until Jesus is with them in the boat that the winds and the waves cease. Jesus' presence makes the whole difference. Praise the Lord. After all these things happen, we shouldn't be surprised by their response. Those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the Son of God. That's where the story concludes of Jesus walking on the water. The first time the disciples proclaiming him to be the Son of God. Through many repetitions, they begin to learn who Jesus truly is. He is the one in total control of all things. He heals multitudes He feeds thousands. He walks on water. He stills the winds and the waves. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of mankind. He is the bringer of peace. And in His presence, there is fullness of joy. The disciples demonstrate for us the right response to Jesus here. They worship Him, which is no small thing. They recognize that Jesus is worthy of worship. This is God himself in their presence. God become man. In in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So let's worship him together like the disciples. Take a moment Take a moment to pray individually and then let's sing to him. Take a moment to pray individually.
Lord, we believe and we confess that you are the Son of God. We worship you. We recognize that you are in control of all things. And through you, all things hold together. You are the source and supply of every need and the sustainer of life itself. With the disciples, we confess that truth. Lord, we pray that you would receive our worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.